Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. Welcome back to The Canadian Story. We appreciate you showing up and listening every day that, uh, well, I guess not every day. We only put out two episodes a week, but every day that we put out episodes. Um, Today, I am very pleased to welcome back to the show, Mr. Drew Weatherhead. Drew, thank you for being here. How you doing? My pleasure, Zach. Thanks for having me, and I'm doing great. That's awesome. Um, I think this is your third time on the show. Um, but for the people who haven't listened to your previous episodes, who the heck are you, dude? And uh, what do you do? What's your story? <laughs> what I do could be the entire podcast because it's all sorts of different things. But who the <laughs> heck am I is kind of the easier one. Um, as it stands right now, I am a uh, Canadian podcaster. I run the Social Disorder Podcast. Uh, people know me generally online through my jujitsu presence, where I'm a black belt that teaches uh, instructionals online. Um, I used to have an academy in Alberta that ended up getting crushed by COVID mandates and restrictions over about 17 months of those in Alberta. Um, and since then, we ended up selling the business, selling our house and moving our family of six on the road where we live full time in our travel trailer, uh, sort of following the weather around North America. <laughs> That's amazing. So um, we, were, we were chatting before we hit record here that you're down in Texas right now. Um, what What is it about Texas that draws you there when... when uh, when you're escaping these these cold, harsh, and sad Canadian winters? <laughs> well, uh, there's that. There's the weather immediately. But um, we we um, this is our second year doing this. And the first year we went down last year in uh, between 2021-2022 winter, um, we traveled across 17 different states in six months, mostly just to, to sort of see for ourselves what the difference was state to state. Because you hear rumors, you know, and people say this state's better than that state, and it gets a little campy. But uh, what we found um, pretty much across the board is when people were talking about Florida and talking about uh, Texas over the pandemic, the, it, it was pretty legit. Like there were a lot of other states that we that we checked out that were not nearly as, I, I guess, normal is the word. Like it's it's weird to say free, but it's what everybody expected life was before the end of 2019, you know? Like it just feels like nothing has really changed as far as being a human being here. It's not like everybody is so much more crazy or, or open. It just feels normal, you know? Mm. Yeah. So Texas is high on that, <clears throat> on that chart. Florida is another one. Are there any other spots that you found in the States that just feel like normal life? Yeah. The, the one that I wasn't expecting that was pretty good was Utah. Oh, no way. Yeah. What about yeah, uh, I, you? I, I get the feeling that, and this is something that I've tracked for myself, and maybe you can tell me if you found this as well, is retroactively, looking back 2020, you know, in uh, retrospect, is that people or areas or societies or cultures that had a higher prevalence of some sort of either spirituality or communal group dynamic that wasn't centralized around the government or that style of um, culture they tended to do better over the pandemic. They had a little bit more of a backbone and weren't going to get pushed around so much. And Utah, as everybody knows, they should know, is very heavily Mormon. It's kind of like the the epicenter of Mormonism. And they are much like Christians, much like Catholics, much like Muslims. They are not going to be pushed around when some uh, government tells them to stop doing what they're going to do. That's fascinating. That's super cool. Um, I hadn't 
ever thought about it in that context. Um, but I can see how that would make sense. It, I, I think it, it, it kind of is it plays into this idea that you serve some other power that isn't the government. You kind of you like when you when you have an external force that is not the government, you are going to be more immune to government pushing their forces on you. Um, but that's interesting. I wonder. I wonder if it's like that in other places, or if it was just like that in the West. Um, but that's cool. Utah's a beautiful, beautiful state. I've been there a few times. Salt Lake City. Did you spend any time in Salt Lake City? It's incredible. There. Yeah, that was the majority of the time we spent there. We spent, I think, a week or two there, and then we went down to Zion for a little bit of um, hiking. But Salt Lake City's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, since we we spoke last, you put out your book. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, for sure. So I put out a book that is titled Consciousness, Reality, and Purpose. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It's the most self-descriptive title I could have chosen because it is on those three topics and they go sequentially in order like that, where I write nine chapters on consciousness, nine chapters on reality, and nine chapters on purpose, culminating in 27 chapters front to back. And a lot of it is stuff that I had been interested in for years anyways and been following and listening to the voices in the spaces on those topics because they're just big human topics. You know, these are things that everybody should be interested in to just a basic existence level. Um, but they became much more acute. And I guess over the pandemic, particularly, especially once I started podcasting full time at the beginning of 2022, I was doing five episodes a week for a year. And it got to the point between my own thoughts on big topics, both societally, culturally, religiously, philosophically, scientifically, as well as having guests on and having their viewpoints sort of mix and match and bump off of mine, where I had all of these different thoughts and ideas that were kind of talking to each other in my head over a while. And they started finding synchronicities in a way that I had to get it out and get it down on some sort of written form or long form of some sort. And I just decided that I'm going to write a book. I'd never done anything like this before. I never had any ambition to write a book, but it just became this, this drive by about August of 2022, where I'm like, this has to be done. And I got it done in about four months. Oh my goodness. I think, I mean, I, I guess I can't speak from experience, but I feel like four months is really fast to write a book. Um, writing a book feels like such a daunting task. Uh, I even, like, I love reading. And when you get a big, like a big thick book, like even reading a book feels like a bit of a daunting task. It's like, okay, I'm going to have to dedicate like a real amount of time to this. Um, was it, do you, do you just attribute that to how on fire those ideas were in your head or was there a focus element that you brought to writing it that you found helped helped you? What was like, it's a big goal to write a mm -hmm. book, especially if you haven't written a book before and you just showed up and you crushed it in four months. That says something about your character. Where did that drive and discipline come from? And, and how did you, how did you harness that in, uh, in writing your book? Yeah. Um, I would love to say that I drew on it, but I think that it drew on me. I, I, I really do believe that the thoughts themselves just used me as a pen in a very strange way. So the first nine chapters, the first focus of the book is on consciousness. And I actually get into it in a couple different chapters about the ideas of ideas and where they come from and uh, the, uh, I guess ancient ideas behind it, the modern ideas behind it. 
And uh, one of the chapters I talk about uh, a focus, you know who Stephen Pressfield is, the author? Uh, yeah. He wrote The War of Art. Mm-hmm. And um, he speaks very literally about the ancient Grecian muses. So the muses, for people who don't know, were a uh, an archetype from the ancient Grecian pantheon of deities that was essentially thought to be the deliverer of grand ideas and inspiration from Mount Olympus down to human beings on planet Earth. So all great ideas, whether they were for music, for science, for art, for literature, were all thought to have been inspirations from the muses. And uh, Pressfield talks about it, again, very literally. He actually prays to the muses every time he sits down in front of his computer or typewriter to write a book. Every single morning, every single writing session, he has the same prayer that's from Homer's The Odyssey, and he recites it. And uh, it essentially believes that's an invocation of the muse. Now, I'm not here to tell anybody that this is literally true, but I do believe that there is something that is allegorically true about that, that there are ideas that exist outside of ourselves that have the ability, if not the the direction, the uh, pejorative or the uh, prerogative to in to put itself into us so that it can become material, if that makes sense. So if you consider consciousness as something that is, and this is like, I'll have to really backload this or or hopefully people have an idea of the the idea of dualism which is an idea from Rene Descartes in the 16th century where he talks about the separation between uh, mind and body and there's like a lot to this the idea that ideas arise within you as if out of nowhere there's no idea that preempts an idea so where does it come from kind of thing and you can do meditative practices to have this uh, witnessed you can turn the spotlight of consciousness upon itself and witness that it just simply appears But all that to say, there seems to be, if not the entirety of ideas, at least certain amount of ideas that just simply aren't yours. And whatever they are and however they exist, they seem to permeate our physical reality in a way that requires them to be projected through a vector to bring it out into reality. So if you were to imagine a thought that needs to be made into reality for whatever reason, it needs somebody to do it through. And I I just... I really do believe that's what happened. There was just so many of these big, massive, timeless thoughts that were dancing around up in my head that needed to get out. And that was the avenue to do it. Because like, I would sit down and in a day write 3,000 words that I hadn't planned. And I would look back and it all made sense. And I would do it day after day after day for four months. So four months is fast to write a book, but it seemed like I couldn't get it out fast enough. That's crazy. It makes me think... So I've never written a book. Written writing a book is a very creative experience, um, and you're th- you're talking about idea and thought like a creative experience too. And there's there's this idea that that we as humans are, how would you say it? We're we are but the vessel, right? So my background is in you know music, writing music, producing music. When I'm in the studio with a band and we're trying to make decisions um, as to what the best course of action is the next thing to put on the song, the next idea, the next lyric, the next melody, whatever it happens to be. Um, there's, there's a place that I go to where I don't necessarily have to close my eyes. I used to have to close my eyes, but I feel like I've, I've just gotten better at it as I've practiced it. Like the ideas don't come from within. They actually come from somewhere else out there. Uh, you know, and you you can there's many different words to describe what that other place might be. I like to think of it as the ether that if you just quiet yourself, yeah. 
and you center yourself and you become present with what is around you. So in my scenario, the music, there are an array of options that are presented to you by the ether. And you just, your, your job becomes selecting the ones that become the most relevant to the project that you're working on and pulling them out of that ethereal place and through you manifesting them into reality. Is that kind of like the experience of writing a book for you? Well, absolutely. Did you know that the root word of music is muse? In fact, muse oh, yeah. is far as far as the word and the idea as it's been passed down through culture from the Greeks. It uh, is the root of music. It is the root of like to muse, to think deeply about something. It's the root of a muse. It's the absence of thought, amusement. Mm -hmm. um, it's the root word of museum because that came from the ancient, um, I think it was... Uh, a Latin words called uh, museon, which was the place that people would go to worship the muses. And you would go to a museum to basically be inspired, right? Um, musing is very deep and ancient and very human. This is something that hasn't changed as far as humans have existed, as far as I can tell. And I do believe that it is a union. It's a symbiosis in some way where you're talking about the ether. Some people would talk about the uh, astral realm. Some people have, they have different words, different analogies, different allegories, different uh, mythologies. But no matter what culture you look at or time or geography over history, everybody and every people group always talks to some sort of action like this that and you can get into the scientific the philosophical or the theological and it's all there so it just seems to me like it's a matter of fact thing and the wording the verbiage is less important than the actuality of it absolutely and isn't it such a crazy thing because I, I i know it to be true but um it's like the inspiration to create something like the idea that it doesn't come from you is so humbling like when i'm in a room with a band and we're working and a uh, let's say uh, a vocalist puts onto the floor an idea for a melody. Like, I think it should go like this. My response might be, oh yeah, that sounds right. Or even like even weirder, I would say that like the language even in, in and of itself is weird. I would say, I hear something different. This is what I hear. But if you think about it, that's absurd. I don't actually hear anything. And yet there is something that is communicating to me that is saying, this is what this needs to be. Isn't that so crazy? Mm -hmm. And it does sound crazy to a very empirical mind. You know, a lot of people, just they aren't catching it when they're hearing what we're saying. But if you are, first of all, anybody in the theological, this is speaking right to them. This is super simple stuff. This is like theology 101. It's like, yes, there are, there's a spirit realm or yes, there is an ethereal nature to reality. Um, but in a culture or in a society nowadays in the Western world, for sure, where we're like at least 50% atheist or agnostic, it's a harder sell, right? Which is why I go deeply into the sciences of it. I go into the philosophy of it. Philosophy to me is a fantastic uh, middle ground between theology and science because mm. both schools of thought can come and meet in that middle ground of philosophy where it doesn't have to be and like theoretically cannot be empirically proven. That's the point of philosophy is to think thoughts before you go out and try to test them. Um, but in that middle ground, it's it's fascinating to see how the what would be otherwise disparate schools of thought being in the scientific and the theological meet and actually agree on a lot of things. That is cool. Um, my background, I have a, a Christian background. Um, so I am familiar with the theological and the philosophical. Um, 
but you mentioned the scientific in terms of what we're talking about. Um, and I have very little experience with what that might be. So what can you tell me about, um, for, for lack of a better way of, of saying it, the science of what I call the ether? What do you know? Well, um, going back to the format of the book, this comes out much more in the reality portion. So I go through the, uh, the first nine chapters on consciousness, which largely have to do with the philosophical, because um, one of my favorite philosophers is uh, was a French philosopher in the 1950s by the name of uh, Gilles Deleuze. And Deleuze had uh, one of the greatest um, one-liners, I think. I, I, I paraphrase it because he says it much better. But basically, he says that what he tries to do and what a great philosopher should try to do is to reach out and palpate the unknowable. Because there are things that we simply cannot test, we can't see, we can't hold in our hands, but we can stretch out into the darkness with our eyes closed and try to feel what is out there beyond our grasp as best we can. And philosophy has a great way of doing that. Um, and when we get into the reality portion of things, things get really, really uh, weird. <laughs> like reality gets extremely weird when you start looking even into the science of it. So we talk about the philosophy and the theology near the end, but the major portion of the reality section is the science where we find out that um, you being Zach are one person, right? You're one thing. You have full autonomy over yourself. Well, actually, you're 31, th 31 trillion different human cells that work in tandem that all ostensibly simply work within themselves to do sell things for themselves, but work in this way to make one thing that you communicate and have autonomy over. That's weird when you break it down like that. You're a galaxy of different things. What becomes weirder is when you go down a level deeper and find out that you have 10 to 1 bacteria living inside of you. So you're actually an ecosystem for uh, like 310 trillion bacteria. So you're basically like their universe to play in and they have no existence uh, or no knowledge of the existence of a body that they're living in. Um, their, their existence is completely separate, but completely entwined to you in this way that neither of you really know what each other are doing, but are perfectly in symbiosis. You go down even lower than that into the molecular, into the atomic, into the quantum, and things just get weirder and weirder, man. And we start getting into the idea that time itself may not be a constant. We get into the idea that the reality we exist in may actually be a simulation. We start talking about like uh, Bostromian simulation theory and uh, quantum multiverses. And all of this is very heavily steeped in mathematics and science. And it's gotten to the point, I mean, since the 1980s uh, from DeWitt and from Stephen Hawking and uh, people that believe in this thing called the many worlds interpretation, which Hawking said is self-evidently correct based on the mathematics, the quantum uh, tests that they've done. It's basically saying that every single time there is a, a quantum decoherence, I'm going to have to sort of backload a little bit of science. So forgive me if this sounds uh, jargony, but no, um, hit, hit me. This is interesting. Okay, so uh, a lot of people listening will know or have heard of the Schrodinger's cat analogy, where uh, this guy, uh, Erwin Schrodinger, was a quantum physicist in the early and mid-1900s, and um, he was the one that proposed this thing called superposition. So a quanta is a, a basically a base particle or something that is as low as you can go down in, in physical reality where it cannot be um, broken apart anymore. And that's the quantum. Okay. You've got would that photons. Be, would that be a step below the atom? 
That's right. That's subatomic. This is as low down as we think right. all material goes. Um, I have reservations if that's sure. actually how low it goes, but this is in science and math how low it goes. Yeah. Um, at that level, you have something of a quantum that can be hold. It can hold itself in a superposition, and what that means is that if this quantum constituent can be in one of two forms, uh, for the sake of simplicity, think of it as a, a left turning and a right turning form. Before it chooses, big air quotes, chooses a form to be in, it holds both at the very same time. It doesn't hold neither. It holds both. That's called a superposition. This is where Schrodinger's cat analogy comes forth, where it turns out that there's an experiment called the double slit experiment that when you observe a quantum constituent, the act of observation actually locks it into one of those two states. It decoheres into a, a def, into a defined state uh, instead of a superposition. Now, Schrodinger's, his analogy was, if you were to have a cat and put it in a box, and inside that box is a little bit of poison, and you leave that cat, and you can't see any movement, and you can't hear any noise. Uh, philosophically, that cat is both dead and alive, because you don't know whether it's in one or the other. And until you open that box, until you observe it, it's it can literally be considered considered both. So that was his idea with superposition. Now, to bring this back forward to the science of many worlds interpretation, now that we understand about superpositions and how they lock based on observation, the math seems to show that when you observe a quantum constituent and it locks itself into a defined state, a left-turning or right-turning or a positive or negative or however you want to define it, not only does it choose one over the other, but mathematically, the other one is also chosen, but in an, in a separate reality, in a different universe altogether. So both of them are chosen, but we only see the one in our universe. And so mathematically, they say that this uh, many worlds interpretation, every single time there is a quantum decoherence, an entire universe like ours is spawned off. Okay, so, <laughs> so hold on. Define quantum decoherence. Yeah, decoherence. So if you think of a superposition where it's it's two things at once, mm -hmm. it hasn't defined itself yet. Decohering is choosing one of those two states. Okay. It's the act of act of observation that locks it in. Now, it's weird enough. And Einstein and Niels Bohr both uh were alive to see this math and they balked at it. They said there's no way it's possible. Although the math is 100% correct. We can't argue with the math, but we find it really difficult to believe that an entire universe is spawned off um every single time uh quanta decoheres. Um since then, it's not only been accepted, but again, Stephen Hawking said it's self-evidently correct. There's uh, a professor right now in MIT by the name of Rizwan Verk who writes about this extensively, who, who wrote a book called The Quantum Multiverse, where he thinks putting um, the many worlds interpretation and tying it to Neil, or sorry, um, uh, Nicholas Bostrom's work in uh, simulation hypothesis, how he thinks that we could be and likely are in an actual simulated reality that is, we're not the base reality. There's a reality before us that is built us as a simulation. Um, he ties those two together and says that basically what we're seeing in computer theory, when something decoheres at the quantum level, it's an A-B test based off of some sort of prime directive, something that the the arbiter or the architect of this simulation wanted to be preeminent. And it runs an A-B test, and whichever one is more likely to end in the result towards the prime directive, it runs that simulation and either shelves the other one or saves it in data form and can call it back in different ways. And this is why 
he he brings forth uh, examples like um, deja vu and Mandela effect, where it seems like history that we thought was real uh, changed, or we feel like we've lived this moment before, kind of thing. He's like, this could be a, a function of a computer simulation, a, a giant AI that's running, and it is A/B testing and going back and forth and trying to find which is the most likely path to whatever prime directive the architect wanted, based upon the free will of the system. <laughs> Oh, it's just that simple. <laughs> like, I, like I said, the, the science is wild when we get into this. But yeah. what's strange is that this is actually scientifically echoing things that Hinduism has been talking about for 3,000 years. They've been talking about a universal all that's one consciousness. They've been talking about basically a simulation that's run like a dream. Like all of this stuff, you go into hermeticism and they actually use the word matrix like 3,000 years ago in some of their writing. Fascinating. I like that... That kind of, in in my own way, makes sense and and plays into some of the things that I believe. There's there's a a real argument. You talked about the philosophy being the middle ground between the theological and the scientific. There's an argument between those two camps. The theological and the scientific communities don't really agree with each other, right? Um, and I I imagine that both parties have their own flaws, but my my working theory is that both of them are correct. In, in the sense that the theological understands something that is in fact true. Um, and the scientific community laboriously works to prove things, but they haven't been able to prove the theological yet. So therefore it doesn't exist. I think the theological exists. I think the philosophical exists. I think the scientific exists. I think it's all true. It's just that we haven't figured it all out yet. And we're still trying to suss it all out. And, and what's even crazier to me is the fact like it, it is so far beyond me that you can use math to tackle some of these problems. Like I just, I just can't even begin to fathom how playing out numbers would in some way begin to prove some of these ideas, but that is so cool. <laughs> yeah. Math is a weird one. I don't uh, claim to be extremely uh, well-versed in it. My, my father actually was a math science physics teacher in, in high school and he, he loves math. My brother got all the math genes. He's, he's brilliant. He's a coder. Um, nice. But as far as I understand, math is just a different language to speak um, about what we're seeing in the scientific. So they they marry very nicely in this union of physics. So if uh, math is one school of thought and uh, science is one school of thought, physics is where they meet in the middle. And uh, physics relies heavily on math. It relies on geometry. It relies on spatial dynamics. It relies on all things in science and all things in math sort of finding that unison. And in that language, I th I'm trying to remember who said, I think it was... I want to say it was Newton that that said that uh, math is the language of the universe. So basically all you're doing is witnessing what is and then trying to quantify it into some sort of derivative equation, which sounds difficult, but it actually uh, it, it works very well. Now, to speak back to what you were saying about um, the theological knows this over here and the scientific knows this over there. I really think that they're all basically trying to talk about the same thing in different language and that it's the difference in uses. It's a difference of verbiage. It's a difference of faith, which, by the way, there's a lot of faith in science and they hate it when you say that, but it's mm -hmm. true. Um, and there, it gets very campy because of that. I find anybody who gets really campy about their faith tends to miss a lot of the big picture because there's so many more similarities that are more interesting than the differences. And the similarities that theology and science find um, 
they sh- they should get talked about more. I think this is what's partly what I was trying to do through the book as well is like, guys, you get, stop bickering for a second to look at what you guys have already discovered. This is fascinating when you start putting them together. But all of this to come back to the point, in my opinion, and I try to lay this out as, as much as I can throughout the book, is that we basically know nothing. And this is something that Socrates came back to. He said, I know but one thing that I know nothing. And it wasn't because he literally knew nothing. The guy was an absolute genius and a stalwart of philosophical thought in the Western world. He, what he was saying is the more you learn, the more you, in all humility, realize how little you know, because it never ends and it only broadens in this fractal sense that, man, you're chasing your tail forever. Like if there's a great thought experiment that I love to uh, remind myself with and to sort of bring up in other people's minds is if you picture everything there is to know, absolutely everything that there possibly could be to know, how much of that do you think that we know? Do you think we know half of everything there is to know? Probably not. You'd be pretty hubristic to think that we know half of everything. But let's just say for the sake of the thought experiment, we know half of everything there is to know. What is the chance, nigh the possibility, that something important and crucial exists on the other half of the everything that we don't know? It has right. to, for it the same to, degree yeah. that we know the half that we do know, you know, that much importance is left on the other side. And I would come back to the point that I think we know a fraction of 1% of everything that there is to know. And that's all of human understanding. And then amongst that, we as individuals only know a fraction of that fraction of 1%. Yeah, absolutely. So who are we to ever think we can figure it out? That's not even really the point. I think the idea is to try to explore, palpate the unknowable as much as we can to try to figure out the truths that work best for our existence, for what we need them for. And everything beyond that is, I think it's it's dealer's choice, man. I think we're all trying to figure out the same thing and just coming to the similar conclusions in different verbiage. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful and exciting though, when you can get to that place, the idea that the point isn't to be right or to have more knowledge than someone else. It is, the point is to be the student, right? Uh, the the running joke that I that I go with is that um, I peaked at 19 years old. I've I I never knew more than when I was 19 years old because when I when I crossed that line and I crossed from 19 to 20 and 21 and and so on from from there I just kept getting dumber and dumber and dumber because I realized how much <laughs> I didn't know right. <laughs> um, but it's so cool and I I wish I could remember exactly how you said it because you said it beautifully. But um, you said something akin to um, we should be spending more time focusing on the similarities between our camps than the differences, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, my background is is in a Christian faith. Um, Christians can get very, very campy. Any religion can get very, very campy. And then those are just the religions. And then there's the, you know, the philosophers. And then there's the scientists. And there's camps everywhere. But there are truths to draw out of each camp. And it's incredibly humbling. It was an incredibly humbling journey for me realizing that, you know, I grew up on the Bible there's a flood story. Well, that's the Christian faith. There are flood stories in other faiths and, yeah. and not just flood stories, but um, stories of a cataclysmic event in other, other faiths and religions that absolutely radicalized and well, not radicalized, but revolutionized humanity in the sense that it changed everything. And then in that story, there are characters that came shortly after that event and imparted knowledge. And there's there's pieces of that in the Christian faith, but there's pieces of that in other faiths. And mm-hmm. when you start realizing that that story plays out in many different places, 
Um, I think Peterson says it really, really beautifully when he he yeah. was talking about the Christian faith specifically when he said this. But uh, if if I could be so bold as to speculate, I, I think you could probably extrapolate this idea out into other religions too. There's a reason that these stories have lasted thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Um, as much as I would like to stroke my own ego, 2,000 years from now, this particular conversation probably won't be hanging around. It isn't <laughs> of that amount of relevance and importance. But there's a reason that human beings, which we all are, have carried these particular stories throughout our history, and they've survived this long. There must be some element of truth to them. And it can get very um, weird and strange fast because um, confined and and um, hard religion at least in my own life, I've observed those sorts of things create more damage sometimes than than good. And they're intended for good, but they can they can be twisted around and and manipulated to control. And um that's not so good. But there's a reason these stories have come so far in our human history. And it's really fascinating looking at them and looking at the world around you and looking at all the different camps and asking yourself, what truth can I draw out of you, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Peterson's a great example for this because he speaks, uh, he's very much in the Carl Jung school of thought when it comes to archetypes and grand narratives. He talks about the hero's journey and the tyrannical king and all of these things that you can look through from the Bible to Star Wars. You know, these these tropes exist because they exist in human psychology. And this is the work of Carl Jung. I'm actually just getting into Jung lately. And he talks about this a lot, about the subconscious, about the, um, you know, the, the shadow side of our psyche, where we, there, there's an entire universe back there that exists that is just as real as the material reality we physically exist in. And they work in unison, but in this strange way, we're very unaware of what goes on in our subconscious. But things like archetypes, they resonate with us. This is why Harry Potter was always going to be a smash hit because it just nailed the archetypes so well. This is why Star Wars, you know, all of those ones, it's because they nailed the archetypes. You look at them, you'd be like, this, it looks like they just renamed characters from the Bible and this this guy's the devil and this guy's Jesus. It's like, well, yeah, because that is an archetype that human psyche equates with. This is understood. And scientifically, you could, uh, you know, you could rationalize that down to evolution. Um, theologically, it seems like this is a truth to the universe based off the creation that the creator made. Um, philosophically, I find this really interesting is Every one of these avenues that you look at, you know what fractals are? No. So a fractal, um, mathematically, is something that is true no matter how much you divide it down or multiply it up. It, it remains the same. Um, this is very uh, evident in geometry. So uh, there's this guy by the name of Mandelbrot who um, originally sort of tried to bring this into mathematical relevance. There were these different equations in mathematics called monsters because they were just wild equations that never ended. Things like pi, things like phi, things like the golden mean, things like, um, uh, oh, what was that other one? The um, Anyways, there's a, there's a bunch of monster equations out there. One of them is really interesting. It's th think of an equilateral triangle, so three sides that are equal, mm -hmm. and go halfway through one of those sides and make another apex, so two lines that are like a point coming out right in the middle. 
mm-hmm. you can mathematically continue doing that because you've made two more lines that you can make two little lines in the middle of those and little lines in the middle of those and it goes on yeah. for infinity. It can go. That, it, it can keep on going. It just gets smaller yes. and smaller and smaller. And that's a fractal. That's yes. a fractal. It's yep. true all the way down and all the way up. Interestingly, in that example, the um, the circumference of that shape never changes. It never gets bigger. It only gets smaller. But the parameter of it uh, goes infinitely. So it's uh, simultaneously infinite and definite at the same time. So these are these uh, monster equations that Mandelbrot renamed into something called fractals. And now that's the mathematic side of things. What I find interesting is the colloquial, colloquial term fractal. So this is something where you see or chunk some sort of pattern that seems to be true all the way up and all the way down throughout reality. And you see things like the golden mean ratio is a great example of this, that Pythagoras found, um, Euclid found, all of these great uh, old Grecian and Roman um, thinkers. They saw this in nature where the patterns in leaves and uh, river systems and lightning and nebula and this stuff goes all the way up and it seems to go all the way down. We keep finding it all the way down into the uh, molecular and atomic and subatomic. There's these patterns, there's these truth, and it seems like they repeat in this way that means that if you see it at one level, it seems to mirror itself at a different level. Maybe not exactly the same, but in a way that's, that echoes. So there's the colloquial use of fractalization. Now, to come back to your point, why we're seeing these things that seem to be true, no matter what religion we're seeing, although they seem to get campy when you get into the religion itself. Well, think fractally. If you were to go all the way down, take Christianity, for example, you can get all sorts of denominations. You can have your Pentecostal, you can have your uh, Baptist, you can have all of these different types. And within each one of those, they fractalize down into different groups until you get down to a cult that's the size of a family, you know? Um, (laughs) But you start pulling that back now. You go to the larger category of Christian, then you go to the larger category of Abrahamic religions, which now encompasses Catholicism and Muslimism and, uh, or Islamicism, I should say. And um, you pull it back again, and then you start looking at humans as just uh, a single creature on planet Earth. And as you start to pull the fractality back, you start to see a lot more similarities in the broad strokes than when you pull the fractality in and you start to see all the differences. And I think both are beautiful and both are relevant, but I believe that we get way too myopic about seeing the differences at the individual level because that's the level that we exist in. But it becomes so, I think, existentially important to pull it out from time to time to realize that one of my favorite analogies I heard uh, Majid Nawaz use recently is he said that we're all a dot on a sphere. And from the perspective of that dot, we're the center of the sphere because that's true no matter where you are on the sphere. Mm. So we are all at the same time the center and not the center, depending on your perspective. And I think that we need to give latitude to everybody else's perspective out there because it's as valid as ours in an interesting way. Yeah, and that that perspective also makes you a way nicer person. Like yeah. people, people who get campy aren't the nice people on the planet, right? It's the people who are curious and interested and respectful of, of other schools of thought um, and, uh, you know, willing to, to realize that they're maybe not the center of the sphere all the time. And maybe sometimes they are, and maybe sometimes they're not. Um, but there's so much to be learned and gleaned from just listening to people who think different things than you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's my absolute favorite thing. I consider myself a thought collector. I like to collect all the different thoughts that people have and and sort of shelf them and compare them against each other and see how they, they interact, find the differences, find the similarities, see, you know, 
truth is a weird thing. I know this is going to hit some people in a very strange way. So uh, I want to sort of set them up for the shock <laughs> is that people think that there are transcendental truths. And this is something that the Stoics talk to. They said there are truths to existence. We need to discover these truths like an archaeological dig. And once we find the truths, we can build out ontological frameworks from there that since this is true empirically, a priori, now we can branch out from there. And I get that. And that's a very scientific way of looking at reality. But to come back to the idea that we know a fraction of the fraction of the fraction that's possibly known in all of humanity individually, what we actually have, and the only thing that we can have, is a proprietary network based off the information that we know that we try to nail truths down within. Now, when you think of it like that, coming coming back to Gilles Deleuze, he said that truth is an act of creation. And that that hurt a lot of feelings in the philosophical world because that was totally counter to the entire Stoic belief system that, that truth could be um, non-a priori. But that's not exactly what he meant when he said truth is an act of creation. And this speaks back to perspective, is that in somebody's perspective, based upon their life experience, based upon the information they know and how it, it works in tandem with other information they know and how it works to the absence of information they don't know, this builds proprietary truths that are 100% true to them within their universe of one that may not um, transpose very clearly to a point on the sphere somewhere else on the other side. But at the same time, I think like the, to speak to your point of um, having empathy for people that have views that aren't ours, I, I think that's, that just has to be the default mode and that people that don't have that simply have lost the script or haven't discovered it yet is that we, we only really have this one life to try to figure out what we can figure out. And we're not going to figure it out. There's no it that can be figured out. That's the truth thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's really an act of creation that we can do our very best to find out what's best. It must transpond everybody else's a dictatorial effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see that entirely. I a hundred percent agree. Um, so it's it's funny that you you consider yourself like a, a collector of ideas or or thoughts, right? Um, that would make you a very very good podcaster. Um, so <laughs> so for people who don't know, uh, Drew does the Social Disorder podcast, which is super sweet. Um, you started that twenty twenty, uh, actually twenty twenty two February. This oh, happened okay. um, literally the day of the invocation of the Emergencies Act. That's where oh, I wow. started podcasting. That's crazy. Um, so when you, I, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm speaking for you and, and I shouldn't, but it, from my perspective, like you, when you started that podcast, it was very much about like the, this, this counter narrative thing. We had COVID like dead in our face. Um, mm -hmm. Everyone was freaking out. Uh, we've since, you know, we're, it's, it's not 2022 anymore, man. We're, we're 2023. There's less buzz about COVID for, I think largely people have forgotten about it. Um, so if if the social disorder podcast was founded on trying to suss that thing out, as many of us in in the kind of counter narrative podcasting world were trying to do, because that is now less at the forefront, what are the things now that you're seeing that you're thinking about? What are the where are we socially disordered? Well, um, I guess uh, good for me, bad for people. There's all sorts of disorders in society. I mean, uh, I tried to do a certain amount of what's in the news, what's pop culture right now, and sort of give my take on it. But that to me is 
in the moment stuff, which is important in the moment, but I try to draw it back always to big meta ideas of existence, which interestingly, fractally, uh, even though I'm talking about societies and cultures, which are massive people, it all comes back to the individual. And that's where it's important. And I try to draw people back to that. So to, to answer your question, yeah, I did start out basically as like trying to get what I saw was going on out there in a world that was not allowing it. It was a very, uh, you know, Herculean effort to even get heard during social media. I mean, social media is still screwed up from this where you can't even type the word COVID or vaccine without being shadow banned. And that was why I was trying to get this information out there that I think was relevant. I mean, hyper relevant when it comes to health and, but even just like at the level of freedom, which is a, uh, 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 it is a societal construct itself. So people think, and this is something that I discovered through the podcast and my own efforts, my own research and my own interaction with other guests that were big into this, like yourself and David and uh, Kalen Ford and other people that were big into the ideas of freedom is that it really actually is an idea. This is a construct. This is a human invention in a way that people mostly in the Western world are born into the belief that freedom is a born right. And I think that it should be, but it certainly isn't. It's something that needs to be fostered. It needs to be protected and it needs to be fought for because to the absence of that, you're going to get dictatorships. It's always how it comes down is there's going to be a, uh, a baseline of freedom that the people believe that they have or that they retain more importantly they retain within themselves that the at a certain point there's a threshold where you obfuscate or you hand off certain amounts of the freedom you're supposed to hold to yourself to another governing body and at that point at a certain point they have more freedom than you do over you and that's what we were seeing we we're seeing that people were just handing over the freedoms hand over fist oh i'm not allowed to travel okay i won't travel oh i'm not allowed outside my house okay i won't be outside my house oh i'm not allowed to have a job anymore i won't have a job anymore you know to the point that it was becoming absurd and realizing at the meta level what was going on it, it fascinated me and came back again to the individual about how important there's a precursor to freedom that i didn't realize was there i thought freedom was the a priori i thought that was the quantum that there was nothing below the freedom level what turns out to be the case is that there's a precursor to freedom that is sovereignty and if you don't mm -hmm. have individual sovereignty if the buck doesn't start and stop with you which it actually does whether you believe it or not which is the point is everything has to be a, a decision at the individual level. Um, the Stoics and the Buddhists both came back to this constantly, is that the, the only way that we can make change is within ourselves, within our mind. Everything we try to project outside of that is an effort in suffering, essentially in the Buddhist sense, is you want to master the mind because it's the only thing that we can control. It's the only thing we are. It's the only thing we can change. Now, in that pretense, why is it that uh, all of the... The media, the government, the health agencies always were asking us. We're, we're making mandates, restrictions to try to guide us like a rat in a maze to a prescribed uh, end goal, to something that behooved them, whether it was giving them power, giving them money, giving them dominance. It always ended there, but it wasn't, they weren't coming to your door and slapping chains on you. This wasn't like an act of war. This was an act of acquiescence because they needed your permission. And that's what it came down to. Sovereign people said, no, this is mine. I'm going to keep my freedom. Thank you very much. And they had a hell of a hard time during that portion of time for, for a lot of different psychological and sociological reasons that I talked to. 
But I think that the story, the the real lesson that I learned and I try to as much as possible uh, project through my podcast for other people to learn is that you really need to cherish and maintain the sovereignty over yourself so that you have a chance of maintaining freedom in the present and in the future. I love sovereignty before freedom. I hadn't heard it described in, in those words. Um, what do you, how do you think personal sovereignty, um, how do you go about fostering personal sovereignty in your day to day now? And I don't mean you specifically, but I mean, as, as a, as a, a zoomed out larger concept, how do we become more sovereign? That is the perfect question to ask. And thankfully, we exist in a time right now where there are some very relevant, very easy to uh, consume uh, public intellectuals out there like Jordan Peterson, even people like Jocko Willink or David Goggins talk about sovereign individuals like actuated automatons that cannot be told what to do. And it's not because they have superpowers. It's because they have done the hard work internally. I speak to this in the portion, uh, the purpose portion of my book where um, you can figure out your purpose, but if you don't have the sovereignty to actuate it, it's basically good for nothing. And so we discover what it is to exist as a human being, as an individual at the personality level, nature versus nurture. We go into the science of it, the the psychology of it, the philosophy of it, and the theology of finding out who you are and if to come back to socrates one of my favorite guys to quote um one of and the the quote that i start my entire book off on is know thyself it's two words it was in uh something given to him by the oracle at delphi know thyself and it turns out that once you know who you are you're going to be less apt to act like you aren't so when people tell you to do something that is not naturally how you would do it, you'd be like, no, I don't do that. I'm not going to do that. When people tell you you need to take a proprietary medication that you don't need, you're probably going to say no. And even if they threaten you with your job and your livelihood and your travel ability, you're probably going to say no. And that speaks to a sovereignty that everybody should and can have and should really cherish. I think as much as we cherish freedom, we have to cherish uh, sovereignty so that when people come by to try to take it, whether it's by acquiescence or if it's by force, if this is an invading body that's coming in uh, like the world wars where you had to stand up for freedom, it wasn't a, a argument at that point. It wasn't um, uh, it, it wasn't people trying to mesh ideas. It came down to might at that point. And guess what? All those people who went out and fought were very sovereign in what they wanted. You know, they they agreed to go and fight and lay down their lives for those purposes. Those aren't people that are behooven. Those are or, or beholden. Those are people that know who they are and are willing to put themselves up against a gargantuan task. And it's people like that that we can learn from. And to speak back to your point, how do you learn it? I think just like any skill, the more you practice it, the better you get at it. That's why people like Jocko are so good at it. That's why people like uh, Peterson are so good at it. Every single day, they're going up against attrition and finding out what they stand for. And it doesn't take long when you start battling ideas about what you stand for and what you believe that you're all like, either going to find that what you thought you was uh, you believed you don't actually know or you don't actually believe when it comes down to it, or you're going to discover what you do believe and clearly do believe and aren't willing to back down on. And that is where you build a sovereign individual. Man, listening to guys like Jocko and David Goggins there is just insane. I've uh, I've read two of Jocko's books. I haven't read any of David's books yet. Um, but David is such a funny dude to me, man. Um, yeah, have you ever watched videos of him working out? 
Yeah, yeah, he's wild. <laughs> he's just like benching like the most way he can possibly bench. And she's like, you don't know me. You don't know me. <laughs> she's freaking <laughs> out. Like what a what a crazy dude. There, but there's something so exciting about that, eh? Like I watched that and mm -hmm. I'm like, yes. Like there, if if we're talking about, um, about I don't, I don't want to use the word truths, but I don't have a better word for it right now. There's something about that type of energy that is true to me. It's like, yes, mm -hmm. I resonate with that. I want to be more of that. You know? Yeah. There's there's a quote I wish I could remember who to attribute it to, but it's in my book. Um, I, I'm going to paraphrase it here. It said, you cannot control a free man. You cannot control a mind that is free. The best that you can do is kill it. And mm -hmm. that's what sovereignty is, is having the freedom of yourself individually, internally. And at that point, like no matter what gets thrown at you, you cannot change that person's mind. That's a sovereign individual. You're going to have to reason around them. You cannot bully through them. The best you can do is kill them. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. I love that. Oh my goodness. Well, um, we should probably wrap it up here. Uh, Drew, thank you so much for being here. So the book is Consciousness, Reality, and Purpose. Um, what's the best place to get it? Um, Amazon is the easiest. I've got it there. You can get it in digital Kindle. If you like digital, there's a paperback, a hard copy, and I even have it on audiobook if you want to hear me read it to you. Oh, that's amazing. Um, where do you make the most money if you get it? <laughs> um, <laughs> this, this is the dirty secret of authors is we make very little money on our books, mm, <laughs> but, yeah. um, probably the audiobook is the easiest. Um, and I know, um, like you can find it on Audible, which is the, just the biggest platform for it. And anybody who subscribes to Audible, they just they get a free credit every month for their subscription. And I find I do myself and I tend to have them piling up. So if you're one of those people that has a credit just sitting around, it's super easy. You just plug that in and you can listen through. It's a seven hour uh, read and you can listen to an hour a day and get through it in a week. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. Consciousness, reality, purpose. Go get it. I'm sure it's going to be awesome. I'm going to go get it right now. Drew, thank you for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Uh, this has been fun. <laughs> yeah, same. It's good to talk to you again, Zach. Yeah, take care. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The CAD Story. That's The CAD Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.